Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. This is the New Books and Law Podcast. My name is Ian Drake, and we are joined today by Mary E. Atkins, who is a Director of Legal Writing and Appellate Advocacy and Master Legal Skills Professor at the University of Florida's Frederick G. Levin College of Law. She's also a member of the Board of Trustees of the Florida Supreme Court Historical Society. And the book she has written, which we're going to be discussing today, is Making Modern Florida, How the Spirit of Reform shaped a new state constitution. Mary, welcome to New Books and Law Podcast. Thank you, Ian. So what brought you to this topic? Why did you want to write a book about this? That's a good question. I, uh, several years ago, became interested in the political history of Florida, specifically how it used to be dominated by uh, the Democratic Party and has uh, done a complete flip and is now uh, tends to... Uh, elect Republicans uh, regularly, and I wondered how that happened, and there was actually a book about exactly that subject, and it kind of got me hooked, and I started reading more and more about mid-century Florida politics, and these books kept mentioning, almost in passing, that in 1968 there was a new constitution, and that seemed kind of important, but none of the books dealt with it in any detail at all, so I started researching it and found that there was a wealth a wealth of information about it. It just hadn't really been put together um, into book form. So that's how I got started. Okay. And so this is a constitution that was uh, finally ratified in 1968. But, um, and before we talk about that process, which is mostly what your book is about, I'd like to talk about the history of the constitutions of Florida. Um, And its first constitution was really back in the 1830s. Yes, uh, anticipating statehood, right. uh, which which occurred in 1845. Um, yes, that constitution was was for the purpose of basically saying we we're we're good enough to be a state. We 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 can become a state, and we don't have to remain a territory. And then, um, I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, that of course didn't last very long. Um, there was a secession constitution um, of 1861. And then a, um, a, a, a another one, a post-war one uh, in 1865 that was never ratified. And then an 1868 constitution, which was a Reconstruction constitution. It was quite egalitarian and progressive. And, of course, as soon as Reconstruction was over with, uh, the remaining uh, whites in power in Florida got together and wrote a new constitution as fast as they could. It was a repudiation of everything uh, that had gone before. Um, it was a, it was an anti-reconstruction constitution, as, as many other southern states also did at about the same time. Right, and, and so this is in 1885. And, Correct. Um, and so in this sense, uh, Florida really does track with the rest of the South. It's um, following in line with the initial constitution, although Florida's is coming a little bit later from the rest of the South because some of the South was uh, already incorporated into the Union by the time Florida comes along. But uh, you've got a, a secession with the Civil War. Florida's the second state, I think, uh, that secedes. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then you've got Reconstruction which is northern-oriented uh, or northern-mandated type of constitution that allows uh, African-American participation in varying degrees. And then, a re- in a sense, it's kind of a redeemer constitution by the 1870s and 80s uh, once uh, Reconstruction's over. And so in that sense, Florida seems to really track the rest of the South. Is, is there any way that Florida during this time period is, is really any different from the rest of the South? Not up through 1885, um, other than being uh, very thinly settled. Um, most of the peninsula was, was empty. Right. Um, most of the people in Florida, at least the ones that were being counted in censuses, 
lived within 50 miles of the Georgia or Alabama border. Right. Which ended up playing into the story of how we got another constitution in 1968. Right. And and so this is the constitution in 1885, this uh, redeemer-type dominated constitution that really uh, it is – in general, I remember reading that there's something like about 149 amendments to the 1885 Constitution by 1968. So yeah. there are a ton of amendments, and so in some ways it's been refashioned. But um, like many state constitutions, it's not necessarily – and this is something I'm going to talk to you about at, at a little bit greater length in a moment. Um, in some ways, this is not like the U.S. Constitution that's – uh, something that we don't amend terribly often, but rather this is almost like a statutory enactment that's frequently changed. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And so um, the big difference with Florida is that there's only the sliver of the north and the pan, what we today call the panhandle, um, which is really settled. And in many ways, the rest of Florida is like a, a wild jungle. Um, mm-hmm. and, and so uh, when does the settlement along the coast uh, start happening in the in the southern central and southern parts of Florida? What kind of got it started were the railroad barons, uh, the, the Henrys, as they call them, Henry Plant on the west coast and Henry Flagler on the east coast, running railways down to, uh, to newly created resorts in places like Palm Beach and Tampa. And uh, the tourists came and they began to settle the, the coasts uh, and there were multiple multiple booms, population booms in Florida, a big one in the 1920s, another big one post-World War II that, that really has just continued since then. So, uh, But the 1890s uh, railroads started it. And so as, and this is a point that you make uh, in the book, is you, you have a well-established political culture um, in northern Florida, and all of a sudden you get these new settlers, and this is really, it seems to be what drives uh, the need for some type of, a particular type of legal reform, and this is the apportionment, which is a, a great part of your book. Yes. Um, the Constitution was very, uh, oddly, it, it received almost 150 uh, amendments, but it, actually there was only one way to amend that Constitution, and that was by the legislature. And they could only amend one little bit at a time. Um, and the Constitution was quite strict in the way it called for apportioning the legislature. So, so it was hard to change uh, the scheme, even if, even if the legislators in charge had wanted to, which, of course, they didn't, because as the, con- as the population changed, um, they held the power, uh, but they, the, the north of Florida had something like uh, three-quarters of the, of the districts <laughs> and only about 12% of the people uh, by, the, by the mid-50s and early 60s. Right. So, and in fact, I was rather surprised to find that native-born Floridians, as you note, are a minority by 1960. Yes. All the people coming in, and this was a, it was a cultural problem, not just a political problem, all these people coming in don't tend to be from Florida. They don't tend to be from the South. Uh, they tend to be from the Northeast on the, on the East Coast and from the Midwest on the West Coast. And they don't have the same values that these old uh, white segregationist uh, politicians and, and Northern Floridians had. So there was culture clash, and they didn't want to let uh, those, uh, those Yankees get in charge of too much of the state. Right. And, and these northern and northerners and certainly Midwesterners, these are, of course, uh, um, whites. Are they often, are they older? Are they retirees or are they younger? They, um, of course, Florida's got and had at that time more retirees than most places. So a lot of them are retirees, um, but not a majority by any means. They were people who wanted to come and uh, just have a better climate or uh, maybe run a resort or go to resorts. or uh, Many of them had, had enough money to be in Florida in the, in the winter and elsewhere in the summer. A lot of them were, um, this wouldn't be why they came, but a lot of them also were Jewish. And so that this was another cultural difference between the, um, the newcomers and the, 
the heavily Protestant conservative northerners, uh, North Florida residents. Okay. And so this uh, North Florida uh, political culture, it, it develops, it even has a name. I, I love the, this name. It's the Pork Chop Gang. Correct. Um, and when is that first? When do we get a sense when they are first called the Pork Chop Gang? Were they? It was in. Uh, it was in the mid fifties. I'm. I couldn't give you a date. Yeah, um, sure. But and w- so, what is the politics then of the Pork Chop Gang, and why do we call them that? It's an. It's an interesting. They were called that originally. Uh, it is thought. Um, that it was for their, quote, shrewd use of pork barrel politics. However, there are people who were involved in politics uh, early early in their lives at that time who really thought that it just had to do with, well, you know, we like, we're country people, we like pork chops. Um, so whether they were originally named, no matter what the original meaning of their name, it certainly came to be associated with pork barrel politics, putting, uh, why, are, why are most of the prisons in uh, Florida in the north? Because they were placed there as, as job creation um, by the pork chop gang. Um, so uh, so that was definitely the reason for it. And they, what were they like? They were, um, they didn't believe in sending much unless it could be something to help their district. They, um, they didn't like taxes. They were they were culturally conservative, socially conservative. Um, that's that's about what you can say about them. They were uh, quite segregationist. And then, uh, of, of course, by the 1950s, once there's calls for uh, reapportionment, and then when the Supreme Court of the U.S. gets involved with reapportionment, that's when they become somewhat protective of. In other words, they're not merely traditional or represent representation representative of a a traditional type of small government politics, but rather they really are starting to battle different interests, right? Yes, they are. They, well, think about this. So in 1962, Baker versus Carr was the Supreme Court case that said federal courts can now get involved in state legislative apportionment. This was the latest in a line of federal cases getting their nose into state business, right? There's Brown versus Board of Education in the 1950s, uh, mid-50s. And um, so these they become states' rights states rights people. Get the feds out of my business. We're, this is our business. We, we are in charge of our state. The federal government is not in charge of our state. And then, of course, by the early 60s, you have um, civil rights kind of getting in there uh, with federal support. And they begin to feel like they're battling for what they call themselves the Southern way of life. And so reapportionment, though, is really um, – it can be correlated to some of the racial conflict that happens – uh, as the Supreme Court gets involved in um, public accommodations and uh, the issues that revolve around schooling and public schools. But really, in many ways, uh, reapportionment is is much more of a larger uh, condition for much of America, at least especially on, in the West Co- East Coast, um, mm-hmm. in terms of what they used to call in Great Britain rotten boroughs, right? Yes. Yeah. And um, and and so, if you can explain the condition, uh, not just in Florida but uh, throughout the U.S. at this time, in other words, why does the Supreme Court get involved in reapportionment? The Supreme Court gets involved in reapportionment ultimately because uh, here's how you get poor apportionment: when you have an, an apportionment scheme, in other words, a, a, a drawing of district lines that. Uh, is, is is appropriate or accurate at the time that the lines are drawn. In other words, um, when they are drawn, each district has about the same number of residents in it as each other district. Then the population patterns change, and the district lines do not change accordingly. So you end up, and this, this was the case in almost every state by the mid-50s, you end up with... Um, you know, Miami-Dade County having the same number of 
representatives as um, a, a small rural county in the panhandle um, because the apportionment called for it. Why doesn't the apportionment change? Because if the lines are redrawn accurately, the people who want equal rights for non-conservative Southerners, in other words, uh, people, people from people who moved to Florida from New York City, people who are Jewish, people who are black, people who are Cuban, people who are not the traditional white Southerner would have votes. They would have political power if these lines were redrawn uh, accurately. So there was great resistance to redrawing these lines so that the people with, quote, the right values would lose power. So, um, so that's a roundabout way of saying they didn't want to give up power to people who were not like them, who held values that they did not agree with, or who they felt shouldn't have power, like blacks. And so um, in addition to these ethnic or and racial dividing lines, we also have um, – suburban, urban dividing lines, rural as well. And so um, this is, in other words, I, what I'm trying to describe is I, it seems to me that this is a, uh, if we call it a problem, it's a problem that is not merely restricted to racial conflict or, or new populations moving in like like was happening in Florida, but even states where the populations may not be changing that much ethnically. And isn't that true as well? Yes, I think it is true. Uh, Florida was an extreme example of something that was going on to lesser degrees and, and, in, and in different ways around the country, but it was still going on. Right. And so um, – and in, but in Florida in particular, another reason it seems to me that stands out is um, there's a lot of money to be had in southern Florida as more people come, right? Absolutely. And so if you can explain how that occurs uh, and why that seems to propel some of this. Well, I'm not – I'm not sure exactly what you're asking. Oh, uh, well, I was thinking about the eventually you have um, revenue from racing. Oh, right. <laughs> and, and so it seems to me that there's a formula or some type of way of distributing yeah. this. And so it's um, you've got what is amounting to, in other words, these are not just summer homes uh, for people or winter homes, I guess, uh, for people from the north. But also they, they have a lot of recreational activities that seem to – all of a sudden open up this uh, veritable gold mine for the people in the north who are making all the decisions, right? Absolutely. So what ended up happening uh, was that people, uh, especially in the Miami area, um, began to uh, build racetracks and have horse racing. Um, there's probably a book to be written, if anyone dares, about the role of the mob in South Florida doing this uh, stuff. But, um, but yes, there were racetracks with Harry Mutual betting. They were concentrated in the South. And so the people that held power, who mostly lived in the North and didn't share these values, had a formula so that the tax revenue from the betting, from the horse racing, was equally distributed to every county so that every little rural county in the North of Florida would get the exact same number of dollars from horse racing and other types of racing as the urban counties would get. So it was a, it was a cash cow or maybe a cash horse right. for the other, for the other counties, for all of the counties. And so, um, eventually the, uh, the people in Southern Florida decide, you know, we want to keep our own money. <laughs> right. And, um, and, and by the way, we need roads and schools and hospitals. Right. That the people in power don't really, care very much about because they're not they're not down here they're up there it is it fair to say that um if the pork chop gang or ty, uh, even if these are not people that are officially members so to speak of the pork chop gang but if the northern uh political officials had been more attentive to the south that um but for the supreme court's intervention in the 60s uh regarding reapportionment Really, the uh, the South wouldn't have minded this malapportionment, perhaps. In other words, if if the South got to keep more of its money, 
and there had been more attention on the part of the public officials rather than simply disregarding these people. Um, might there have been less conflict? Well, there might have been less conflict, but when it comes down to it, I think everyone wants to vote. Everyone wants to be actually represented. And so to have one or two people in the legislature, when by rights you should have 30, um, I don't think that's ever going to sit well, even if, even if your needs are being taken care of. People want to, to actually have representation. Right. And to make your point even further, as you know, um, I, I noted this 30 to of the 40 senators represented during the pork chop era pre night. This is up through, I guess, the early 1960s, um, 30 to four, 30 of the 40 senators represented about 20 percent of the population and 80 percent of the population was represented by 10 senators. So that gives an idea of the imbalance. It was extreme. Yes. Yeah. OK, so. um all of a sudden you have it, – it seems to me that um, there are these initial calls for reform that come from outside the government. In other words, from the Florida Bar Association, which is the private mm-hmm. association of attorneys, um, and the League of Women Voters. So these seem to be the initial um, uh, petitioners, if you will, for uh, constitutional change. Is, is that really the way – is it that or is it – inside the government where you start to get these inklings first. You're correct that the first inklings, really the first, came from the League of Women Voters, which had started um, before World War II with just some good government ideas. Here's what a good constitution maybe ought to look like. They called it a yardstick um, for, um, for con- a yardstick for building a constitution, something like that. And then right after the war, and excuse me, the League might have been just after the war too, um, but the Florida Bar, which is an integrated bar, meaning um, if you are a lawyer in Florida, you are you must be a member of the Florida Bar. Um, it started in 1947 with uh, some drafts of new constitutions, and these were submitted to the legislature and ignored. And and back then, you know, the League of Women Voters, a lot of people didn't respect the idea that women might have some ideas about government. So they would sometimes get sort of laughed, uh, laughed at or just not taken seriously at all. And what are the main concerns? In other words, what are the – are there chief concerns uh, that the League of Women Voters has versus the Florida Bar Association? Um, no, they were, they were not dramatically different from each other. Um, they wanted a constitution, of course, that allowed for fair um, uh, apportionment. Also, the the – Office of the governor was exceptionally weak under the old constitution. The governor had no lieutenant governor and could not succeed himself. Um, he shared an equal vote on most matters of, most matters that the executive branch had to consider were voted on with equal votes by the governor and six other statewide elected offices, attorney general, for example, secretary of state, commissioner of agriculture. There were six of them. They could succeed themselves indefinitely. The governor could not succeed himself at all. And he had no more than than an equal vote. So uh, a lot of people call this a plural executive. um, And why anyone would want to run for governor in that, uh, uh, under a scheme like that is, is anybody's guess. Um, so that needed to change. A lot of people thought, in fact, that that uh, cabinet, as it was called, should be appointed, uh, as in the federal system. Uh, the courts were a mess. They were different in every county. Um, cities had judges. Um, it, you never knew from county to county what the jurisdiction was. Um, there were a lot of lawyers who, toward the end of their careers, didn't want to see that change because... Um, once, once you knew the system, you had a big advantage over anybody who didn't. Um, there was no home rule, so anything other than very basic, mundane, routine um, local government actions had to um, they had to petition their legislature, their, their legislator. So the legislature was extremely powerful under this scheme. Um, the Constitution also had some outdated. Uh, 
outdated features in it, such as banning mixed-race marriages, um, calling for segregated schools. Um, in 1885, when this was written, calling for segregated schools, it was hardly a public school system. So, uh, so it had it had a lot of features that um, that really needed to change or be updated. And so um, what are the key steps? Is it these outside groups that really push constitutional reform getting rolling, or is it really from the inside? It was probably a combination, but I don't know that it would have ever really started rolling if it were not for the Baker versus Carr decision that allowed the federal courts to nose their way into uh, apportionment. Because again, the the, the old Constitution was so strict in its provisions regarding apportionment that it really you could not achieve fair apportionment under that under the old scheme. It was too rigid. Uh, so you would have to have a new Constitution in order to have effective reapportionment. Um, but lawyers. Um, Lawyers were a big impetus. A lot of people were uh, lobbying for a new legislation, a new constitution. And then finally, as reapportionment crept along at a slow pace, and urban uh, places began to get a, a little bit more representation, uh, there achieved kind of a kind of an almost critical mass of people who wanted, who genuinely wanted a new constitution. Right. Right. Um, and I'm skipping a step. Uh, in the latter half of the 50s, a reform governor came along, uh, Leroy Collins. Um, although he was from North Florida, he was not a pork chopper, and he in fact defeated a pork chopper, and, and <laughs> earning himself the undying enmity of the legislature. So when he wanted a new constitution and asked the legislature pretty much every year to please consider a new constitution, the legislature would... Uh, consider, <laughs> they would consider and they would ignore um, or distort any proposed new constitution that was uh, that came before them. Okay, so the Supreme Court, uh, your argument is that the Supreme Court comes along and it really pushes this because of the need for reapportionment. Now, arguably reapportionment itself could have happened uh, if the legislature was willing to do it. Um, it it uh, it didn't have to be a wholesale constitutional over overhaul. In other words, they could have done that and that only, right? As the Constitution was originally, only one section of one article could be altered at a time. So there would have to be a lot of incremental small changes made to that article of the Constitution in order to loosen up the strictures that were in place. Um, so it was, it was partly the difficulty of getting that done, and it was partly the lack of will on the part of the legislators, who again were the only ones who could alter the constitution. Right. And so uh, much of um, what you discuss, a, a large portion of the, of the book is um, dedicated to the actual nitty-gritty process of um, the Constitution, what is kind of akin to the Constitutional Convention, which is this Constitution Revision Commission. Correct. Uh, so ex explain that process and when that started and how that panned out. In 1965, there had been the uh, a series of decisions already made by the Supreme Court of the United States about reapportionment. And Florida had its own case, and there had been some decisions about it um, continually um, holding that the makeup of the legislature was not yet representative. As I mentioned before, it had been in incrementally um, getting a little bit and a little bit more representative, allowing the pork shop hold to loosen a little bit and Again, I mentioned the almost critical mass of reformers, uh, younger, more urban, with ideas about changing the Constitution. In 1965, the pork chopper's hold was sufficiently loosened 
that the legislature actually passed a bill saying, all right, we're going to create this thing and we're going to call it a Constitution Revision Commission. And what it's going to do is it's going to be uh, composed of appointees by the governor, each house of the legislature, the courts, and the bar. The attorney general will be an automatic, um, uh, an automatic member. And they are going to draft a new constitution and, and recommend it to the legislature. So the legislature even then held control. They could have ignored it. In fact, they had ignored a very similarly made up um, commission 10 years before that worked for a year and then submits a draft and the legislature ignores it. So 1965, same thing happens. So this group uh, is is appointed and they meet for about a year. They're headed by a, a dynamic lawyer named Chesterfield Smith, who would later go on to um, denounce Nixon during Watergate and became briefly a household word. Um, so this group worked for a year and they uh, they created, and yes, I do have a lot of nitty gritty details in the book about the, how they approached it, how they attacked it. Um, they started from scratch. Um, they, they were very idealistic. Um, so, so yes, in, in about a year, uh, beginning in January of 66 and ending in December of 66, they created a new constitution. And they submitted it to the legislature. And the next thing that happened, do you want, would you like me to talk about kind of what happened next? Sure. Okay. Well, a bunch of things happened at once. In November of 1966, Florida elected its first Republican governor since Reconstruction. His name was Claude Kirk. He had no governmental experience whatsoever. Um, in fact, Chesterfield Smith once said of him that uh, he thought no one uh, probably had ever gone into government with as little knowledge of how it worked as Claude Kirk did at that moment. Kirk chose to spend his transition weeks, instead of building a team, he spent it at the plenary meeting that the Constitution Revision Commission held to put the finishing touches and put the, the whole thing together between Thanksgiving and Christmas of 1966. He became a fan of the idea that we should have a new constitution. So in his inauguration address, without consulting anyone, he called for a special session to be held six days from then. You can imagine the consternation. Um, a lot of new members, uh, again, the pork chop hold was a little bit loose. There were a few, few new people in there. so. Uh, a lot of new people, they had to put their job on hold without notice. Otherwise, they would not have met until April. So suddenly they're meeting in the second week of January. And this is in 1967, right? 1967. First day of the special session is January 9th, 1967. And they don't even have the opening speeches out of the way yet when word comes that the U.S. Supreme Court has just ruled that the Florida legislature was null and void. It was not representative. It didn't exist. The Supreme Court essentially said that it, it, each of the previous times it had held this, it had said, go make up, go, go back and work on it and make your own plan, make a good plan. This time it just said, you are null and void, go home, we'll come up with a plan. So, all these people had come to Tallahassee for one reason, to work on the Constitution, and then they couldn't do it because they were told they didn't exist. So everybody just sort of had to wait. In a month, the court came out with a plan, uh, a new reapportionment plan that was put together by a University of Florida political science professor. Right. Um, they held special elections again. And they all came back in April, and they ignored the Constitution. They ignored the Constitution because this new recreation park in Central Florida was being proposed, which, of course, became Disney World 
and it needed special legislation. Everybody dropped what they were doing and paid attention to the Disney legislation and passed it almost unanimously. But they didn't actually agree. They did eventually work pretty hard on the Constitution. They did not ignore the draft. They worked on the draft and they changed it, but it took a year and a half before the legislature um, birthed that new Constitution. So it was really two groups of people. It was the Constitution Revision Commission that did the basic draft, and then the legislature tweaked it. And, you know, this um, your account starts out, it seems to me, with emphasizing um, the obvious um, imbalance from the migrants to f- central and southern Florida, which will obviously create interests that, uh, for funding reasons, uh, want to have a better balance of representation. But then also there are these what we could call philosophical or ideological concerns of groups like the Bar Association in the 40s and 50s and the League of Women Voters in the same time period. And so there, there's this merging of the practical concerns with um, philosophical concerns. But it seems to me that you emphasize um, the importance of particular individuals. In other words, they're not merely prominent, but also their temperament seems to be important. Uh, Chesterfield Smith seems to be uh, central to this. So is is that an accurate reading that, in other words, these these important and lofty principles, they have to be managed by people who can get along with one another? Absolutely. Absolutely. They, it, it, it was amazing, and actually even since 1968, during the periodic um, Constitution Revision Commissions that we've had since then, at, at every point of Constitution writing in Florida and probably everywhere, personal relationships and personal um, qualities really matter. They really make a difference. And um, as I say in the book, um, Chesterfield Smith's personality uh and his leadership qualities were uh, were legendary. Really, uh, they used to call him Lord Chesterfield. Um, he would uh, he really kept everybody in line. Um, but yes, there were people. There were there were the young you know the young starry eyed people who had studied politics um, and who had lofty ideals. They were involved. There were old pork choppers in there too. Um, that actually one of them had been uh, one of the head head members of the pork chop gang who was briefly governor, uh, Charlie John, was in this Constitution Revision Commission. And when it came to talk time to talk about the apportionment scheme, he kind of waxed eloquent and said, look, you know, I've, it, it's a terrible process. Let's come up with a way to, let's come up with a way to not have the legislature have to do it themselves. He his view didn't didn't prevail, but it was interesting to see kind of how he came around on that subject. And so once the Revision Commission is done with its work, it presents the Constitution to the legislature first. It has to, right? It has to. That was the that was the um the condition of of their existence. And so um they present this to the legislature, but as you've noted, you've indicated that there are other more immediate fish to fry and uh, things like funding, taxation, education, all of which might be addressed in actual constitutional reform, but nevertheless these are much more prominent issues or uh, time is of the essence, it seems, even beyond uh, things like reapportionment that the court is breathing down the legislature's neck about. Mm-hmm. That's true. They had, to, they had to think about exciting things like how, how to fund schools, um, you know, finance and, and bonding um, rules, uh, taxation rules. Um, and, of course, until they got it done, everything was still operating under the old Constitution. So they had, um, you know, they had that... The time, time was not on their side. They needed to work fast or else they were still stuck under all of the old rules. And so... Once it go, does go through the legislature, though, um, it really does pass with a supermajority, right? It passed. Uh, do you mean at the uh, at the polling booth? 
no, I'm, I'm thinking about at the legislative level and then uh, when they submit it to the voters later. Uh, but the, it does have to pass with, I think, a three-fifths majority. Is that right? New constitution, um, anything constitutional does have to pass the legislature with a three-fifths majority. Um, currently, currently that is the case um, at, the, at, the, at the voters' booth, too. But at the time, it was not. It was a simple majority what it needed to pass. And it got about 50, 55%, I think. Mm, okay. It, it carried, uh, it, the urban counties carried it. Right. Oh, and, and as to be expected, right? Because the okay. urban counties are the ones that are newly emergent in central and southern Florida. Correct. They're the ones that need, need that benefited, that would benefit the most from it. So, yes. And so once this is submitted to the voters, it's actually put on the ballot, but I was, I was somewhat struck by the fact that it's put on the ballot in parts. Yes. And so explain that and, and the and, reasoning behind it. And it was also incomplete. Um, it was put in part, uh, let's see, the, um, uh, the election uh, section was separated out um, because it, uh, the separate election, because originally it was going to call for an 18 or 19-year-old vote. And they separated it out thinking, well, that people might just vote this part down because they don't want uh, draft card burners to be, uh, you know, to have the vote yet. But in fact, by the time it actually got in its final form, the voting age was 21. Uh, so it was uncontroversial and they kept it out. Um, Ian, I'm blanking on what the other separated out piece was. Well, the, um, you've got the, um, the judiciary, which is not actually submitted to the public is in there. Correct. Nobody could agree on a judicial article, which was actually one of the things that was needed the most. Um, but think about it, you know, who's working on this, and an awful lot of them are lawyers, and they all have different ideas about um, about what should happen to the judiciary. But also there was going to be a lot of blood in that. There were an awful lot of judges that were going to lose their jobs under any uniform judicial article. Right. Because uh, there were a lot of non-uniform judges. So they really couldn't get the judges on board. And if you think of it, judges are judges are at the retail level. They deal with people every single day for their jobs. So if they're saying this is a bad article that's going to you know, get your local judge out of a job, then people aren't going to vote for it. So it never even got submitted. Sure. Um, two years later, it did get submitted and voted down. And it was only two years after that, in 1972, that a good, solid, um, uniform and passable and well-designed judicial article got passed. And you know who wrote it? Janet Reno. Mm, right. The uh, abuser attorney general under President Clinton. Correct. She, um, she was an, uh, uh, a top legislative aide at the time and uh, did the actual drafting of that. Now, I think the other uh, provision that was separated out uh, was the home rule provision. Yes, thank you. Um, sorry, I forgot that. Yes, a lot of people thought that home rule was um, kind of a communist plot. And I, I have to tell you, I'm not sure why, uh, but a lot of people really um, opposed the idea that counties or municipalities could rule themselves. And uh, it was it was very controversial, but ultimately it uh, ultimately all three pieces of the Constitution uh, that were submitted all passed with about the same pass rate. So it it didn't turn out to be treated any differently by the voters, but there was a fear that it would be. There were a lot of interest groups that um, wrote letters to the legislature during this period saying, "Don't let." Um, don't let this communist plot pass. Um, so, yes. Well, maybe that was attributable to the fact that the cities uh, that are most salient in claiming or desiring home rule, they're very liberal, right? And so they're probably going to be much more liberal than the traditional political officials that are in these rotten boroughs. Mm -hmm. you, may, you may well have a point, yes. So when it's submitted to the voters in these three parts, absent the judiciary, the judiciary reforms, um, they approve it 
by around a 55% voter approval, right? Correct. And, and yes. Yeah, and, and this is 1968, right? Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so what are the consequences then of this new constitution? Does it yield all the intended consequences or are there things that happen that are unexpected? It did yield the it did yield the desired consequences for the most part. There were a couple of things that um, probably are still holding us back. One is um, it's in our constitution that we can't have an income tax. Um, that seems a little restrictive. Um, one of the most interesting un um, uh, unintended consequences was actually the scheme for for future revisions of the Constitution. Uh, Florida's Constitution it has more ways to be revised than uh, that of any other state, at least the last you know at that last check, and it has something that no other state has, which is an automatically recurring Constitution Revision Commission. And so what it called for was 10 years after the adoption of this Constitution, and every 20 years thereafter, there will be a Constitution Revision Commission. Um, the drafters, that, that was in the original draft from the 1966 working group. They anticipated that that Constitution would be adopted in 1967. And I'll spare you the details, but the way this is written into the Constitution would have, uh, what it said is that they meet 10 years after adoption and then they have to uh, have a, a draft of any any revisions they decide are needed in place six months or 180 days before the next um, general election. They thought that this thing was going to be adopted in 67 and that they would, um, they could meet in May of 67, you know, get, get appointed in the spring of 67, work for a year, and then be ready in May of 1968, excuse me, 1978, I'm sorry, 10, year, 10 years after adoption. So they meet in 1977, work for a year, um, 180 days before the November 1978 election, they would have revisions ready. Well, they didn't get... It didn't get adopted in 1967. It got adopted in 1968. So the timeline just didn't work. It didn't make sense. They would have to complete their revisions before they even met for the first time. So that was kind of an unintended consequence. Nobody caught it. You know, years of looking at this document or months of looking at this document, nobody caught that. And so they had to ask the Supreme Court for an opinion, which was basically, which part of this provision do we ignore? And they ended up meeting in 1977 as though it had been adopted in 1967. And so 20 years after that was 97. 20 years after that is right now. So we have a new Constitution Revision Commission uh, that just got appointed this past February, and has begun holding hearings. So it's a it's an exciting time in Florida, uh, constitutional-wise. But when that commission does its work and ultimately proposes something, it's not, of course, mandated that the Constitution be changed, but this is going to be something that's ultimately submitted to the voters, right? Correct. This, this, is, a, this is a very powerful commission because they do not have to go through the legislature. They are appointed... They're not elected. There are zero qualifications for this. You just have to be a breathing human being and have somebody appoint you. Um, We have a a really interesting variety on it this year. But yeah, so they meet, they work on it, they put things on 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 the ballot, and then the voters pass it. And now, unlike any previous one, Within the last 20 years, we have changed the Constitution to require a 60% approval of any constitutional amendment. So these will have to pass by 60% plus one vote. And the other unintended consequence that you had noted was, um, I want to come back to this current commission in a moment, the 2017 group, but um, another unintended consequence seems to be that 
the provision for citizens initiatives. They, yeah. They've they've had some <laughs> unexpected results. So tell us a little bit about that. Yes. One of the ways, and, and this is, of course, not unique. Lots of states have citizens initiatives to amend the Constitution. When I was first interviewing people for this book, um, one of the, the first gentlemen I interviewed was on the 66 working group, the commission. And he said, you know, the thing I'm proudest of is I really championed the citizens initiative. And I said, gosh, we've got some pretty weird things in our Constitution. As a, as a result, you know, did, did, are you still happy with it? And he said, yes, because, he says, I was a lobbyist for my career. I knew that the legislature is not interested in what the people are interested in. The people need their own way to make their voices heard. But here's the problem. The people... Uh, you end up with things that have no business in the Constitution, and probably the most famous one is we now have in Florida a provision that protects pregnant sows from being um, confined uh, too tightly. So there you have it. Well, where's pregnant the chicken lobby? <laughs> yeah, where's the chicken? Yeah. Um, we we have another citizens' initiative that bans gill nets. Um, so, so there is a chicken lobby. <laughs> there's, there's, you got your fish lobby. You know, we're going to end up with a, a quail hunter's lobby or something. I don't know. But okay, so that that brings up a question I'd want to ask you, which is. Um, a lot of state constitutions, and really in many ways, I guess this has been a facet of American state-level constitutional reform ever since the 1830s, where the state constitutions are f fairly, especially, of course, in, co in comparison to the U.S. Constitution, they're fairly frequently amended, especially mm -hmm. especially once you get citizens' initiatives after the progressive uh, period in the late 19th, early 20th century – when you get the progressive reforms and the much easier ability for amendments to occur. Um, and as you've indicated, there are certain things that are not, quote-unquote, supposed to be in the Constitution. So I wonder if we could ascend to the ether uh, of political theory for a minute and talk about, you know, what, what should be in the Constitution? It seems uh, that you have, you know, a sense for, you know, there's certain things that are properly, quote unquote, constitutional, and then there are other things that really should be left up to passing and transient majorities at the statutory level. And, mm -hmm. and so I wanted your opinion on uh, what you think about that distinction and whether or not Florida, Florida's Constitution, as it's been amended, um, falls within that or, you know, if, it, if it's more of a statute than a constitution or what have you. Well, I'll start by saying that I think one thing that should be in our Constitution is a provision for citizens' statutory initiatives so that when you have something that you feel is a good thing, but maybe it doesn't, quote, belong in a Constitution, you could have a citizens' initiative that would actually just make your pregnant pig protection a statute and then work in something that would allow the legislature to maybe review it after three years or five years and only knock it down with a supermajority or something that would, you know, that would lend some protection to that. So that's the first thing I'll say. I think that that's, uh, I think that that's uh, a good way to clean up our Constitution. Um, but to answer your question more directly, I think Constitution first should be broadly applicable uh, uh, provisions and should, of course, lay out what your government should look like. It should express the ideals of, um, of the people of the state. Um, and, and it could just stop there. But I do think it needs to set out things like, what is our education system going to look like? Um, what is our, how, how do we treat bonds? How do we get our tax revenue? Um, so there are things that state constitutions need to have that the U.S. Constitution does not have. So state constitutions, by their nature, are going to be longer and more detailed than the U.S. <clears throat> Constitution. Um, so I think broadly applicable 
matters and, and things that actually lay out how your state operates are probably what I would call, quote, constitutional issues. And what about higher law provisions? In other words, do you see a constitution as something that uh, is and should be beyond the reach of easy majorities? Um wherein transient majorities are much more easily able to cobble together uh, a majority in order to pass a statute, but rather a constitution should really be something that isn't passed with, you know, as you say now, it's, I believe you said it's 60% is needed? It is, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, do, you, do, you, do you think it should be higher maybe, maybe like 75%? <laughs> um, in other words, make it more difficult so that what is in the constitution are things that are agreed upon a by a wide swath, uh, a super majority of the populace um, to be beyond the easy reach of a majority, a simple majority. But if you get it too high, if you get that majority requirement too high, then you have a small group of people controlling what doesn't happen. So I don't know. I think 60% is high enough. It, there are a lot of people who think it should only be a simple majority, but I, I kind of think 60 percent is high enough. And then if you get something that's really, you know, the ones, the ones that are really popular are going to pass with 75 percent anyway. And maybe that's what we should have. <laughs> In well, other words, the, the stuff that's overwhelmingly popular is the stuff that you want to be at that level of approval. Uh, meaning that you want to require such a level of approval that you'd have to have such a widespread agreement. But I, I guess we can agree to disagree on on the <laughs> supermajority idea. So there is currently a revision commission. Are there any – and I, this is beyond the scope of your book, um, and so I, forgive me if I'm putting you on the spot here, and feel free to simply say I'm not sure, I don't know, but are there any hot-button issues that are on the offing in this uh, revision or in the sites of this revision commission that we know of? Yes. Education is really in the crosshairs. There is a, um, a, a strong subset of people who really want to see charter schools um, made much more numerous and powerful in Florida, um, as well as voucher systems. And uh, a lot of the appointees are people who have backgrounds in education uh, and I think are were probably chosen with the idea that they will get in there and do some rewriting of the education article. So that's a big one. Um, some of the things that the group is currently in its opening round of public hearings, it's called the uh, Floridians Talk We Listen Tour. And I've, I've attended one of those in person and uh, uh, listened to a few because they're all streamed. And what I am hearing a lot of there and also in, conversations I've had with commission members, the things that are catching their ears, um, voting rights for felons. Florida right now has it, um, it's very difficult and arduous process for people who have already paid their debt to society in jail to, to have the vote again. Um, statutory citizens initiative so that citizens can have a voice, um, that doesn't end up being constitutionalized. Um, those are the main ones. Uh, there had been a legislative push. Uh, there have been several legislative pushes in the last half dozen years trying to restrict the judiciary and make it less independent. I haven't seen that um, mentioned much in the public hearings. But I do know that one of the appointers, um, the Speaker of the House, had said he was going to require, a, as a litmus test uh, for his appointees, that they say that they would be willing to impose term limits on judges. Now, we've already had one of his appointees say at a public hearing, um, I was not given a litmus test. So we don't really know... Um, to what extent the independence of the judiciary will come up, but I suspect it will. Okay. And and so those are the big issues, the education um, and uh, 
the uh, judiciary. Um, how about the tax issues? Are, are, is the income tax a perennial? It is, it's a perennial, and uh, I used to think it was kind of a third rail that you know people just don't want to touch it. But I know that in 1997-98, that uh, revision commission, it did come up and it did get discussed, and it just didn't get the votes to make it to the ballot. And by the way, these groups make up their own rules. Um, that's in the Constitution. And the group in 1997 required an internal 60% majority to pass something onto the ballot. And they were very successful. Most of what they proposed passed. The 1978 group um, only required a simple majority to put things on the ballot, and nothing they proposed passed. Hmm. Okay. So, and the current group has not yet adopted rules um, they are, are meeting, I believe, next Monday or Tuesday to uh, to finally vote on and try to come up with a set of rules. Okay. Well, our guest today has been Mary E. Atkins, and her book is The Making of Modern Florida, or Making Modern Florida, How the Spirit of Reform Shaped a New State Constitution. Mary, thank you for being a guest on New Books and Law podcast. Thank you, Ian. It's been a pleasure. 